Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. Man, oh man, July is here. And that means that we've got win totals all month. Uh, Media days are coming up in less than a week. They'll be getting started at the SEC in Hoover, Alabama. I'm sure we'll get plenty of nuggets to chew on, some good quotables. uh, and, And Barton Simmons, basically this is right here on our podcast. This is the beginning of preseason 2019, and I'm fired up. I am, yeah. I, I'm the the green light is uh, is up for you to just and us to just dig in. No, no more apologies. You know, we can just talk preseason, uh, make predictions. Uh, you've already made a couple. Uh, we'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll, that's right. we'll make a few more. Uh, and I got my TV tan on. You know, like I got I went hit the beach, um, got my bronze up. And uh, now I'm ready to, to, to be a talking head. Doesn't want to, one of my favorite um, annual traditions of the football kickoffs and the media day circuit. It's just, you know, and, and I would never allege like everybody do, do whatever makes you feel good about looking in the mirror. But it's always like good to do the side by side of the hair color at the media days and then the hair color like rivalry week in late November. Right. Like, like you talk about the TV tan, but I I just, I'm always so impressed when Nick Saban comes out with that rich chestnut Brown at this time of year. Oh yeah. The, the, cause all those head coaches, they've just been straight up just golfing it for the last, (laughs) you know, month and a half, two months. Yeah. They've been hitting a couple satellite camps um, but this is this is when Saban's bronze is at its peak. There's no doubt about it. There's a lot of uh, skin tone envy for those guys at, at SEC Media Day. So what's the? All right, you have been uh, not like yes, you did go and uh, get your little tan on, but man, that was like a mini vacay because you were busting it at Frisco at the opening. Uh, we've had some uh, Elite 11 also going on. Some of the best players in the country who are going into their senior year of high school, the guys who we're going to be talking about for the early signing period in about five months. Um, so let's let's start right there. What were some of the things that stood out to you from uh, the opening? Yeah, I mean, there was, there was definitely a lot um, – uh, always is sort of a lot to chew on. But I would say the biggest single takeaway – that I thought was was really striking and startling is what Ohio State is doing at the wide receiver position. Um, you know, if people that have watched Ohio State closely and and even followed recruiting kind of have a sense of, of like what their MO had or has been. And it's been sort of these um, Paris Campbell, Johnny Dixon, um, these sort of former high school running back, former high school athletes, just multi-purpose, speed sweep, crosser, space players. Uh, and they've been really good. And what, three of them got drafted this year, and uh, it's worked for Urban Meyer's offense, and it's been uh, a, this really dangerous Oh, a bunch of, uh, like to go nerdy on it, it's a bunch of mesh specialists. It's a bunch of mesh guys. Yeah, uh, you know, but get 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 a, a DB, you know, 
rubbing off you just enough space to, to kind of catch the ball on the run and then you're gone. And it's like, uh, and that, and again, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's, I'm not knocking that, but now what Ohio State's done and, and I think you got to credit Brian Hartline, the wide receivers coach, but also I think it might be some insight into what they're going to be, uh, as a, as an offense under Ryan day is they are recruiting, I mean, they, they got a kid named Julian Fleming committed, who's the number one wide receiver in the country. He was at the opening. He was, he was, he will remain the number one wide receiver in the country. He was phenomenal. Four four guy, six two, forty one inch vertical, twenty four plus inch long ju- or foot long jump, everything you want. Soft hands, but he's this big bodied outside receiver. Um, and then alongside him, they've got this kid G Scott, who is from Washington and who is six foot two plus who's this big physical polished route running specialist who makes one-handed catches like their routine and then they got this kid Jackson Smith Jigba out of uh, Texas who's might set the like all-time career Texas receiving mark next year as a just a pure like a pure smooth incredibly polished skilled wide receiver and those three guys are all like top 60 players in the country at wide, and, and all playing wide receiver. And then they got uh, another kid who was at the opening who's this 5'8", kind of Rondell Moore type of kid who compliments them all as this slot um, toy receiver. And so I just um, – it's just, you know, those guys we, – we did a dream team from the opening and uh, sort of – because it's this seven-on-seven all-star event with like 150 players and our three receivers that we picked for the dream team were the three Ohio state commits. So that that's a little, that's kind of speaks to kind of what they've done, what Brian Hartline's done, what Ryan day's done at that position. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable kind of how it's this perfect core, this unit that they just sort of transplanted or are transplanting from high school to college. And it's a, it, it's, it's really well, orchestrated and how they've done it why does it seem like uh the like the other osu oklahoma state gets these guys it's normally under recruited overlooked but you know there's definitely a certain like a certain body type and a certain gameplay now it seems like the other osu ohio state i mean it's that sounds big 12 right like it sounds like you're building a big 12 offense when you're trying to put all of those pieces in place i I don't know that i would like i don't think you that to me it's it's like this. I think, if anything, like the old model to me is more Big Twelve ish. Like it's just sort of getting these like athletes. And whereas this is, I mean, these guys are just NFL wide receivers. Like they're just recruiting. They've just recruited three NFL wide receivers. Um, and so that uh, that that translates anywhere. But I think, and you know what? Like this speaks to just sort of their recruiting. Uh, power the weight they carry on the recruiting trail because these guys are from texas uh and pennsylvania and washington like they're not a bunch of like they didn't get lucky and have a bunch of guys from ohio and so i I think these guys translate to any offense um and it's not as if they would choose like in the old in the old uh model and the Urban Meyer offense, I don't even know that they would choose like a bunch of slot type guys over them if they had the choice. I think these are just like arguably three of the best receivers in the country. Um, so I don't think this is. I think this is this maybe may hint at where Ryan Day's going offensively, 
Um, but at the same time, maybe not read too much into it because these guys can just like you. You could make a case that these are three of the top five receivers in the country. Mm. All right, what about the tr- all right? So Justin Fields this year. You know, what is the like what kind of quarterbacks are they already trying to get in on for what the future of that position looks like? Well, I mean, they've got a kid committed in 2020 named Jack Miller who was hurt and didn't participate much at the Elite 11. Um, and then they got a kid committed in 2021 named Kyle McCord who's um, who's a good player, uh, but he's a, he is both those guys are very much like pro style guys. So there isn't some Justin Fields isn't and, and I think there the idea is that uh, Justin Fields is going to do like Ryan Day can incorporate and use a bunch of zone read stuff and um, you know use Justin Fields' legs and play to his strength. But I don't think that this that necessarily is an indication that this will become some running quarterback offense because they're not recruiting that way in terms of the guys behind them in 2020 and 2021. So all of these things, I think, pre- present a, a picture where it'll be very interesting to see sort of how it comes together uh, from in terms of just what the offense looks like this year. And I think it could be – I think it just could be the type of coach that Ryan Day can sort of sh- – shape shift his offense year to year depending on the talent he has um, Which, certainly I mean, that's sort of the reputation he has yeah and like you're ohio state right like at some point don't we just come back to like uh yeah yeah you should be able to to like recruit at a high level you should be able to get some of the most talented players and if you're ryan day and you've been you know d- dubbed as this whiz kid rising star in the coaching industry by dan mullen early and urban meyer late then you you clearly have to be able to be flexible you've gone to the nfl and you've come back to college like all of this some like some of it i do think reflects on ryan day but i'm hesitant to put it all on Ryan Day because I unfairly and Barton, I'm admitting I'm being I'm not being fair with this, but I unfairly am treating Ryan Day like um, the the guy that you maybe grew up or friends with or went to high school with. They got a brand new BMW on their 15th and a half birthday. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and, and you're like kind of looking out of the side of your eye. You're like, man, you don't even have your license yet. Like we're just, we're playing basketball in your driveway and you're just talking about this car that you'll be able to drive once you pass the test. Like I, like I, there is a lot of, uh, a, a lot of side eye and a lot of me thinking that Ryan day has all of the built-in opportunities to succeed. And so therefore, I unfairly have set higher expectations and, and am going to wait a little bit to see not just what this offense looks like with Justin Fields, but sort of, you know, how he how the offense looks moving forward and how he handles some of the bigger picture in season stuff, uh, even beyond the recruiting trail. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's fair to have really high expectations for Ryan Day because he inherited a really good situation and to hold him to those like if 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 Ohio State messes around and goes 9 and 3 this year or something then that's a really bad look on Ryan Day and and I think that's fair I think that's you know it, it's hey we've now seen it to where you can follow a legend and 
and elevate the product. We've seen Lincoln Riley do it at Oklahoma. Um, that's perhaps that's part of the the reason why Ryan Day was afforded this opportunity because you we 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 saw it in practice and it can work, but it also creates a scenario where the expectation is real. Um, and and I, I think it's fair to expect him to 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 uh, deliver on that. Anything else uh, stand out as you were taking a look at some of the prospects before we move on to some Pac-12 North over or under win totals? I mean, we, we got, obviously, I think both of us are itching to get into actual win totals, so I won't dwell too long on the opening. A couple other things of note. I mean, I think the quarterback position, um, Haynes King is a really fascinating kid. He's probably going to be a five-star at some point. In our, uh, 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 he's pacing towards being a five-star with us, uh, a quarterback, a Longview, Texas, an East Texas kid. Country is all get out. Talking to him, it's like you're talking to, um, you know, just a an old like Texas high school football coach. Like he just he's he's so he's he is very fun to communicate in that way. But he is a four five, low four five, high four four kind of athlete. He plays basketball. He runs track. He took his team to undefeated state championship. He can do it with his arm, with his legs. He's he's awesome, and he was really good in that setting. And it feels like his recruitment, which is a Final Four of Texas A&M, Tennessee, Duke, and Auburn, it feels like it's it's it is trending towards a Tennessee, Texas A&M battle, which will be. Uh, I think really interesting. And if Tennessee can land him, that is that is a huge coup for Jeremy Pruitt to go to East Texas and land a guy like that. If Texas A&M can, then I think he's the best quarterback in that room very quickly. Um, so that's going to be fun to watch. And I also got a chance to see, you know, during the Elite 11, uh, during that event, they have pro days with – all the guys throw, you know, 20, 25 passes like you see on TV with George Whitfield, like, you know, with the broom, navigate, you know, got <laughs> holding the script or whatever. And the, the, the college counselors that were there were Jalen Hurts, Sam Ellinger, Shea Patterson, and uh, Derek King. And so I saw their pro days. And I tell you, the, the Red River rivalry looks like it's going to be fun because the clear top two from those pro day sessions were Ellinger and Hertz. Oh, yes. It, I mean, those guys really look sharp. They were crisp. Like the Ellinger is you, – you you think these these high school quarterbacks are really good, and then you watch the, the college quarterbacks throw, and just everything is just so much more compact, so much more crisp, like so much more consistent. And then usually when you see the NFL guys throw, it's even – more ridiculous like elevated to the next level so you really do kind of see this this progression of what is a realistic expectation and Ellinger is 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 kind of on that level and I think Hertz is too um and so you know I think Ellinger is 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 still on the iconic pace that we've set for him when we when we called it back after the USC game two years ago uh and and I think that Jalen Hurts, I mean, I just I after watching him throw in his pro day, like I still think people are underestimating him as a passer. Like I don't think this is some hamstrung offense now that Jalen Hurts has it. Not that people are are yelling that, but people are hinting that oh, can he, 
you know, do they have to change the offense? I, I don't think they do. I think Jalen Hurts can do it all. Um, and he just is going to have a chance to grow in the position finally. No, oh, I mean, is it wild to think that a 21, 22-year-old human being might be able to make steps forward in their skills at what they're working on? Yeah, not only that, but last year was really the first year that he had a true quarterback coach. Before that, there really wasn't, uh, you know, Mike Loxley really wasn't a quarter. He didn't really train him in the, the quarterback position. And I think that, I think Dan Enos helped him a lot in that regard. And Lincoln Riley will take it to the next step and, and he'll have the oxygen to work with. Like they will be, they, they will be empowering him to grow as a quarterback instead of this Alabama offense when he was under center where it's just like, look, man, we got this, we got this bus, uh, this, this 18 wheeler that, that we're going to drive to the you know, national championship game. If you just, you know, keep us on the road, uh, right. don't screw this up. And he did that job. And now I think he'll have a chance to, to do a little more before we, uh, hit the break and get into the PAC 12 North, uh, two questions about the other two quarterbacks. Uh, number one, I have been, uh, loud and like, kool-aid man oh yay like i i have been all over anyone who asks me talking about my dream of what the dana holgerson Derek king uh partnership could look like i don't know that i would in, in that setting expect him to stand out against those other quarterbacks but thoughts there and then the second part is uh was shea patterson is that where he leaked all the fake quotes that have been circling <laughs> around that he's been <laughs> throwing around about jim harbaugh uh yeah i don't man that's, that's dude the fake tough. the fake inside quote thing like i even fell for a little bit of it when it first started trickling out like four months ago not that i took it as real but i gave it way more uh weight than i should have now Wait, it's what like, was trickling out four months ago so so give, give the full rundown here the I, chip, I, i'm not sure how caught up i am the chip this is the same source that way back when was saying uh nobody stands up to chip kelly he doesn't have relationships with all the players. Oh, you're kidding me. So this, all this stuff has been fake? All of it has been fake. Oh, my God. But you could believe that Chip Kelly would only have relationships with certain players and no one would want to stand up to him. Believable rumor. Yes. So this is just like a, some Twitter handle or, or what? Like is, is it a kind of a semi, semi-legit media service or something that is just making up quotes? They are advertising. It is not semi-legit. They are advertising themselves as anonymous source for uh, like player quotes. Oh, wow. Okay. But <laughs> So this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. But Shea yeah. Patterson's response was great when he said that uh, his phone, you know, all of his mentions were going crazy after it happened and it really messed up his golf game. And I respected right. that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, in terms of Shea as a as a quarterback and what I saw, and this is not, uh, again, this, I'm just speaking on just seeing them in the pro day. I still think, man, like that guy, I think his, his he throws about the, as pretty a ball as you're going to find in terms of like his ability to deliver and in and, and a quick release which is which is really natural and fluid in and out of the pocket moving around and so there, there's like from in terms of just like the delivery of that football like he looks as good as you could possibly ask to me 
But I will say, I mean, he was not. He was probably number four out of the four. Mm. He had he had some errant throws. He was, and this is a, hey, this is a twenty throw small sample size. Um, but he had some errant throws, and he was not as crisp. And uh, who knows why or you know behind that? Like, I, I don't think you need to read too much into that. Um, but it does. It could you know that is a bit of a microcosm to where we're at with the Shea Patterson career at this point. Former five star. Uh, flashed in three games as a true freshman at Ole Miss. Um, had some good moments as a in year two. Uh, Ole Miss fans kind of had mixed emotions about him leaving because they like Jordan Tamu. Comes to Michigan and wins a starting job, runs a couple quarterbacks out, and good year. And a lot of the efficiency and accuracy numbers have him as one of the best in the country, certainly one of the best in the Big Ten. But here we are heading into year four, and and I I think the Shea Patterson era is very much undefined still. We we, we still don't really know how good he is or how good he's supposed to be or how much he can elevate a team. Like It's all very much jury still out. When that's the case, and I guess the theme for this is just unfair declarations. That's how you know we're back in the season. But when that's the case, when like a, a highly recruited, um, you know, big time prospect is going into year four and their college career is yet to be defined, I often will then hesitate from saying that they individually are going to be the key to what because it would be very easy to say Michigan success next season is going to be defined by Shea Patterson. And I think that I'm saying if you're relying exclusively on Shea Patterson to be the difference maker, then Michigan's probably in trouble. Everything else needs to be leveled up and better, and then Shea yeah. Patterson's probably that finisher that's going to be able to take you over the top. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. Like I do, I think that you need like you need Shea Patterson. If you're Michigan, you need there to be a game where Shea Patterson elevates his play and puts his team on his back and and wins it. A game. You don't need three or four of those games because you, you need three or four. Uh, we need two or three other games where the team surrounds Shea and and sort of it's just a, a complete product. Right. And uh, I don't think this is. Uh, I don't know who the you know who the the court, You know, it's not Kyler. He, you can't ask him to be Kyler Murray. Right. Uh, you don't. And and. But what if he, Shea wants to be Kyler Murray? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's, I think imp- that's, that's going, yeah, I think that's going on too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's probably, that's probably pretty on it. Um, so I, I mean the whole thing, but I do look at, we've talked about it before though. I think he is in a, uh, a, the best position to be successful yet in this spot in this with with Josh Gaddis's offense but as I'm thinking as I'm saying this I mean this is fourth offensive coordinator in four years um for Shea Patterson that's not ideal uh so we'll see if he can get it done and then Derek King was he was really good I mean he was he was probably third of the of the four um and when you're talking about a guy that was playing wide receiver as a freshman in college uh, and all the other things that he can do with his legs are, are supposed to be um, his strengths. 
then for him to have a, a really good pro day is is I think encouraging. So Houston, I mean, hey, you're on the Houston train. I, I'm I'm there with you. I think they'll be I think they'll be fun, especially with Derek King at quarterback. You wanted it. We're gonna deliver. We're counting them up on the other side. Pac-12 North next. Welcome to the Nothing Personal with David Sampson podcast. Do me a favor and blink, please. Did you blink? That's how fast the Major League Baseball season went in 2020. The postseason is already upon us. Whether it's baseball news, you want NFL, college football, water polo, chess, movies. If there's a story, we'll have it covered every weekday, five days a week. Just subscribe and download on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever else you find your podcasts. No BS, no soft tosses, no hot takes. You know, it's always business. It's nothing personal. There's nothing on earth quite like this. Oh, what a goal! The UEFA Champions League is back at its new home on CBS All Access. Sensational! Stream every match of the world's most prestigious tournament live. That's incredible! The UEFA Champions League group stage kicks off Tuesday on CBS All Access. There's nothing like it. As much as I think it's the, the under Count is a safe up. play, like, I can't even... Count them up! Count them up! How many games are going to win this fall? I can't fathom who wins. How many games are going to win this fall? I just can't. I don't see it. It's not, it's not on there. It's not, not the schedule I'm looking at. Unless there's another schedule somewhere. That's right. Win totals are back here on the Cover 3 podcast. We're going to begin out in the Pac-12 North. Barton, you got all your documents out. You, you shared. You can follow uh, Barton on Twitter, at Barton Simmons. You follow, you, he threw out the little behind-the-scenes shot. <laughs> um, we're going to – are you cool going – do you want to go from the top of the numbers down? Yeah, I think that's the play. So then yeah. we will begin – and by the way, no win totals – in double digits for the entire Pac-12. So take that for uh, for what you will. We'll begin with the Washington Huskies. Uh, the over-under set at FanDuel's Sportsbook in New Jersey at 9.5. Are we working on the same numbers right now? Yeah, I, I pulled from the... I pulled from the um, CBS story with uh, with all the, the numbers. So if those are where they're coming from, that's what I got. Some asshole named uh, Pip Chatterson wrote this story <laughs> on CBS. Yeah, all right. So nine and a half is the number for Washington. Um, the we've got a, a season opener. No, we've got no. Uh, no, you had the season opener against Auburn a year ago. Uh, so we do have like potentially another win in there. This was a, a ten and four team last year. We're losing Jake Browning. We're getting Jacob Eason. Yeah, you know, sort of. Where, where are you attacking the Huskies with the win total at nine and a half? I, I went into my my Washington breakdown expecting to want to lean the under. Uh, I feel like this is a year when Washington is 
a little bit in transition. I mean, they lost a lot on defense. New quarterback, Jake Browning, for all his flaws, was a four-year starter. Uh, Miles Gaskin, I don't know. He's he's got he's got some Washington records, doesn't he? At running back, I mean, at just a hundred percent. I mean, know, like so. like absolutely. He played every single down for four years. I'm yes, he has all of the offense records. Right. So that I mean. Everything tells you that this is a reload bridge year. I mean, you're losing you're you're losing some of the biggest names of in modern Washington history. Um, and then I looked at the schedule, and we're back to like a Washington favorable schedule. I mean that that when I picked Washington for the playoffs the year they went to the playoffs, um, that was all about the schedule is why I, I picked that. And so I don't think they're going to the playoffs this year, but I'm looking at their schedule and they're trading out Auburn for Eastern Washington, or I don't know if they're trading them out for Eastern Washington. Maybe they're trading them out for Hawaii, but they're, they, they got Eastern Washington open instead of Auburn. Their other non-conference are Hawaii and at BYU. At BYU could be a little tricky, but you're playing them pretty early in the season and, and you should have your guard up. Um, so, other than that, you're talking about their their Pac-12 road games at Stanford, at Arizona, at Oregon State, at Colorado, and then your home games are USC, Oregon, Utah, Washington State. All all those are losable games. All those are really good teams, but they're all coming to your place. A place that Washington hadn't lost since like 2016. Yeah, I I give I think that Husky Stadium is one of the sneaky home field advantages in college football, and that's like one of those you know you you would never really know it because that's not the you know the games are always on late and you never really think about it as a you know the raucous environment, but the just the sheer results. It's almost like betting information. Husky Stadium, like what whatever value is. Remember we had Kenny White on here before last season talking yeah. about the different home field advantages. I think I think. Washington, even in the betting line, probably has cooked in a little bit more points for home field advantage because of how good they've been there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that schedule is as favorable as it gets. And so with that as my my building block for this pick here, I look at what else is going on and, and I mean, the recruiting is like, – I have zero zero question about the defense. Yeah, the defense is, doesn't have the star power last year. But Jimmy Lake has got – I mean, he's reloading in that secondary as effectively as any position group in college football is reloading. From a recruiting, development, production standpoint, Jimmy Lake's a star. And this is – I mean, this is last year there. It's just he's going to get a head job next year. I don't. I mean, he's too good, and and even when he does, um, the 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 co-defensive coordinator that sort of handed them the keys just to keep him around, Pete Kwiatkowski, is plenty good enough as well. And I mean, so like the defense isn't he the defensive line guru? Like that's how they tag team it. Kwiatkowski is the one who's like turning out your Danny Sheltons and like you're just elite run stuffing defensive lineman and Jimmy Lakes has been bringing up your Taylor Raps, your Byron Murphy, like just sort of it's it's like between the two of them they've just been putting players in the NFL draft like four Washington players in the NFL draft every single year it feels like yeah it's I mean he there's a you got a front guru and a back end guru um and and so I think that that's that's encouraging so 
obviously, and and the my my concern is less about. I don't really have a concern about the defense. My my concern is more about the offense, where they had too many cooks in the kitchen at the quarterback position this spring. They had this true quarterback competition, seemingly between like five guys. Um, it was it was. They were all named Jake or Jake. They're all named Jake. <laughs> Jake, the Jake and Jacob, uh, you know, battle of of the spring, and you know they lost Colson Yankoff in the process. Uh, a good uh, quarterback that transferred out. Jake Hayner's battling with Jacob Eason. Jacob Sermon is is hanging around and almost transferred out. But I think when you got that many guys, you're trying to get reps to. No one's really getting reps, and so. I, I, I'm concerned with that. I think Jacob Eason wins the job. I think Jacob Eason's a, a really good talent, but I don't know that Jacob Eason is ready in this first year in the offense to 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 be that you know that guy who's going to lead him to a playoff berth. Um, and I don't know that Bishop Bush Hamden, the offensive coordinator, is. I mean, he is. He's a young coach. He got the job last year. And I think that we saw some growing pains there um, taking over from Jonathan Smith. And maybe we underestimated the importance of him in that offense, um, who's now the head coach of Oregon State. And so there's a lot of reasons that I'm like uh, still hesitant about that offense, um, primarily just sort of the quarterback position and the continuity there. And the quarterback position only in the context of being a playoff team, a, a Pac-12 champion team. Whoever they pick, whether it's Hayner or Eason, is certainly going to be fine. But how good will they be? Um, and and so I think that was a concern. I think Major Adams coming in at, at wide receiver coach will help elevate that position room, uh, which they need to get more production out of. Uh, he's a guy that was the offensive coordinator at Western Kentucky before that. He worked at Boise State. Uh, and I think he's a really good coach. But I'm just, you know, so I, so all that to say, there are concerns, and I was ready to act on them and pick the under, but I've looked at the schedule, and I just can't do it. I think it's a ten and two team. Chris Peterson made some statements early in the season, maybe like four or five games in, where he hinted at the fact that the staff was still in a little bit of a transition in terms of the offense and, and the play calling and the game planning. And that was, I think, when we started having the discussions here on the podcast about, you know, wondering if Jonathan Smith really was kind of like a an alpha and, and sort of had a good feel for Jake Browning. And, you know, the way that Peterson said it, he would he was using statements like, oh, you know, there's certain things with his skill set. And when I heard the phrases, Barton, I, I felt like he was saying – he was telling us what we have, you know, hinted at that Jake Browning is limited. Like there are limitations uh, to Jake Browning. He's he's very very good, but whatever the the ceiling is for Jake Browning, uh, we we saw it probably when he was the Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year early on in his career as a starter. He was he was very productive. He was very good within the system. You surround him with enough playmakers, he was able to make it work. He was able to lead the Huskies. I mean, this is a program that's gone. 32-9 and nine in conference play uh, over the last couple of years. I I think that you remove that governor. And I like you said, I am not ready to commit that Jacob Eason is 100% like this great upgrade or that they're going to get 
you know, find some incredible upgrade, but I'm wondering if just just the fresh blood, just the the changeover, just not having uh, you know, Jake Browning at the end of his college his career with the new offensive coordinator, if all of it is just going to allow for everything to just move a little bit more freely because if I was to describe Washington's offense in one word from last season, it would be clunky. Clunky and inconsistent. And so to to mix it up a little bit, I I, I think that that is probably where my bet is. I, so it sounds like we, we are both on the over for Washington. Yeah, and I think that's a I, – I, I, I like the point you're making there in that it felt like – I mean, it felt like for us as as – non-biased observers that Washington as a program, as a fan base was just sort of, and it's painful to say it because of, you know, how that got battled for that program. But it felt like at the end of it, they were just sort of weighted down Mm -hmm. uh, by Jake Browning. And there's going to be some plays that Jacob Eason makes that are frustrating and there's going to be some time where he doesn't have the right grasp of the offense. And there might even be some times when like the offense looks a little bit stagnant because of the, you know, maybe there's limitations from a play calling perspective or from a, you know, what he can do at the line of scrimmage perspective in terms of, of being ready to make those checks or, or, um, or calls. But uh, there's also going to be some moments. And I think these will probably outweigh the other side of it. But there's going to be some 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 moments and some throws that Jacob Eason makes where like you're going to see Washington Huskies Twitter, you know, uh, simultaneously all tweet out Jake Brownie would have never made that throw, mm. you know, and mm-hmm. and perhaps that might open up the you know the Ty Joneses of you know in the past game or 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 unlock Hunter Bryant to be even more effective at tight end or. Um, you know, catch Salvin Ahmed on a, a wheel route down the sideline. And like just they're, they're, that arm could perhaps, even if there are other flaws alongside it, to, to your point, that, that arm could re- perhaps like just unlock some excitement and some energy in that offense that was being weighted down by some of the limitations of Jake Browning. Count him up! Uh, from a quarterback that we haven't seen in action with a lot of questions uh, yet to be determined to a quarterback that we're going to be hearing about, talking about, and taking a look at uh, almost every single week. And this is where we come back to the idea of, you know, the, the NFL draft's impact on college football because to the way that I'm looking at it, Justin Herbert is one of the top quarterback talents in college football right now. Yet, and I don't think this is an East Coast bias, and I don't think this is an anti-Pac-12 bias, I'm not ready to say that Justin Herbert, while being one of the top quarterback positional talents in college football, is necessarily a surefire thing to be um, one of the best quarterbacks in college football. At the end of the season, when we're doing our Heisman Trophy voting, when we're doing our All-America voting, I think that Justin Herbert, uh, for me has to really take some steps forward in terms of a whole body of work. And he has had injury issues. I understand that. But I don't think it's a surefire thing that he is one of the best quarterbacks in college football, even if he is one of the top quarterback prospects. Yeah. um, Oh, this over-under is at eight and a half. I'm sorry. (laughs) I didn't mean to 
to to dive us right into Justin Herbert, but I do feel like that is a primary talking point in how you view the Oregon Ducks in 2019. Is the is their number eight and a half? Yeah, I must have been looking at an old, um, an old story because I had him at nine. I saw I, I saw him at nine, but uh, it, it it was not the Chip Patterson story. It was like a Ben Kerchival story. So uh, I don't have the most updated numbers, but I like it better at eight and a half. It helps me out a little bit in terms of what I was thinking there. Um, Justin Herbert completed 59% of his passes last year. That's not great. Yeah, but but get this though. Like he I don't even, I don't know where the pecking order is. I don't know where this list nationally. I know it's really high. It might be number 1. I don't know. But he also had 52 drops from his receivers. Yo. That's a that's a big number. <sighs> if you account for drops. And look, everyone's going to have drops. So this right. is this is an, a ridiculous, you know, this this um, exercise is flawed, but if you do account for drops, he had he completed seventy two percent of his passes. Um, so the the question for me on Justin Herbert, and, and among those fifty two drops were eight touchdowns, eight touchdowns that did not count because of drops, and maybe they scored another you know later in the series or what have you, but uh, eight end zone drops, and so. I think Justin Herbert needs some help from his receivers. They do get Jawan Johnson from Penn State, who is ironically uh, drop-plagued himself, but he is also a big-bodied target who is uh, who's really good and and who should help them. Um, you know, they've got they they and and I think most importantly here for the for the Oregon deal is that this is. Arguably, and I might actually make this argument, the best offensive line in the country. Oh. So that's – I mean, I think that's the encouraging side of things with with Oregon is really good offensive line, a couple young running backs that made an impact in year one last year that will have more experience. Yeah. You would hope an improved wide receiver and core. They got good tight ends, um, and then they got the, qu- the quarterback that is probably, I think, I don't know. Like, it, it, I've, I think if I had to bet on who the top quarterback in the draft next year would be, like who's the first one off the board, I would lean Herbert. I know that that means I'm picking him over Tua, but I still, I think, would lean Herbert. Um, and so – I just think this offense, the question I have is, is can Marcus Arroyo elevate his game in year two as offensive coordinator? Um, and and I think that's a that's an important element here as well. But uh, offensively, the offensive line is going to be really good, and they've, I think they've just got to be improved elsewhere. And then defensively, um, you know, there's some questions there too, but they've recruited really well, and – they got a five-star Kayvon Thibodeau at that defensive end. They've got Jordan Scott, who's been there for a minute. DJ Johnson, who's a transfer, supposed to be an impact guy now. Diamador Lenore and Thomas Graham are, are, are really good at corner. Like, there's players over there. And while I think Andy um, Avalos, who I, is, is a really good D coordinator hire from 
Uh, Boise State, is he better than Jim Levitt? I don't know. So there's something here is what I'm getting at. And and you still have a, a quarterback that can elevate you in Justin Herbert. I'm going under. I think it's an eight and four season. So even so here's at eight and four. Like, do you think that they just this is one of those situations where they're as good or better than last year, but the record just doesn't reflect it because of schedule? Or are you saying you just don't think they will be as good as last year, or do you think la- or, or that you think last year was some sort of a mirage because they went nine and three last year? Yeah, but they like the the loss to Arizona was bad, and uh, and going, they went actually they did go eight and four, and so go, they went eight and four regular season. Going remember when they were down like twenty four nothing at the beginning of the Washington State game? They ended up battling back, but it ended up being a loss. Like there's there were maybe three to four moments where I was just dumbfounded by the play across a half game or quarter by the Oregon Ducks. And look, I mean, it was year one for Mario Cristobal. Like that's there there are challenge there are like some very real uh challenges there, even if that was uh, you know, like a promotion internally, trying to keep everything together. And what you mentioned before, you know, schedule, absolutely brutal, where you've got the season opener against Auburn, then Stanford, Washington, and USC, all three of those are on the road. And so to to look at the rest of the schedule, and it's like, so what do you, are, are you thinking that, um, that Oregon's going to be able to, even if they, like, are they going to win all the rest of those games? I I don't think they're at that level of consistency yet. So it's like, yeah, they could get USC, they could get Stanford. I'm not I'm not going to pick them winning at Husky Stadium uh to beat Washington and I'm not going to pick them to beat Auburn. We we know I'm not picking them to beat Auburn. And <laughs> uh and so yeah, that's I keep coming back to the idea that like Justin Herbert is awesome. He is awesome. But I just I think when we look at the Oregon Ducks team at the end of the year, they're going to be like playing in Las Vegas as an eight and four team. I can certainly see that. So as, that's not crazy to think. Your offensive to, to oh state. your offensive line argument. Sorry, I don't mean to go back to that. I think that uh, you can come big with it is the most overlooked or underrated offensive line in college football. So, I mean, it, the, the the that week one game against Auburn obviously determines a lot. I mean, that is a huge game, and. As I sit here today, and I know that you're that you're out there in the <laughs> in the five bomb universe on the Auburn side of things, and I know that I might have even like contributed to that or or cheerleaded that, and as we were we have talked Auburn earlier in the spring, but when I look at that week one matchup in Arlington, neutral site, it's it is, I mean you're gonna be playing an Auburn team that's that's got a. a a first-time starter at quarterback. It's either going to be true freshman Bo Nix or Joey Gatewood. Um, it's and and it is a you know Auburn's defensive line is the best in the country, but they're they happen to be going up against an Oregon offensive line that's one of the best in the country as well. Um, and so there's a little bit of strength on strength. And so then, is there enough? of a neutralization everywhere else to where you, you you hand that game to Justin Herbert and just say, beat the the kid on the other side. So I think that's going to be a really interesting game. And by the way, like a little like early season bet that I've got my eye on, I, the number to that's probably going to be relatively high because just two teams that have this sort of 
offensive reputation, but that that's a I feel like an over or an under layup because like uh, the the way Auburn will win that game if they win it is just this keep it close, grind it out, lean on the defense because that's what Auburn's done like the last two years with Clemson and uh, and all their first sort of oh, early Washington. season games. It's it just was, try to make that as ugly and close yes. as possible and win it. Like, but Justin Herbert can get the ball into the red zone, but they're not going to let him score touchdowns. Right. So, anyways, that's a tangent on that game, but that's a fascinating early season game. But if they win that, then then I think very realistically, in fact, like I would expect it. Like if they win that, I I would expect them to start the season six and zero. And then they got a tough stretch with Wash at Washington, Washington State, USC. So they probably don't sweep that that route. Um, and but if they win two of the three there, and then they win two of the three on the back end, which is Arizona, Arizona State, Oregon State, which you know they're probably favored in all three. I mean, there's a lot of ifs there, but I I've I could see ten. Like I could I could really realistically see ten and two, and so I'm I'm at the nine and three, ten and two boat with all, with uh, Oregon. All right, one last question before we move on to Washington State. Do you believe? That Mario Cristobal, and I understand that this is Mario Cristobal plus staff plus assistants, you know, but do you believe that Mario Cristobal is a plus value uh, coach in in season in game matchups? I don't have. Uh, n- I mean, no. My suspicion is he's not. That's. Um, I think. I think that that's where. Uh, I when I was going through the schedule. It was like I, I think Oregon's going to be a better football team than Stanford, but I don't know if I'm going to take Cristobal over Shaw. I think that right. Oregon can beat Washington, but I'm not taking Cristobal over Peterson. Like that's that's kind of where I was along the way for a couple of those spots. And and I am Mario Cristobal is uh, an elite offensive line coach. I believe he is fantastic on the recruiting trail. That is like one of the places where we've seen uh, the most strides be taken. But I, as we're going through over unders, I don't think he's a plus value, uh, you know, tie break when you're looking at toss up games. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd agree with that. And I think if they go eight and four this year, then you're going to see a new offensive coordinator that next year. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I and because Mark because what Mario Cristobal is I think is a very competitive, um, like he's he's gonna be, like decisive. He will be someone that takes action. Like he's not gonna be satisfied with just having Oregon be a middle of the pack sort of top tier Pac-12 team. Um, and the recruiting speaks to that. Like they are recruiting at a level that is elevating them. And so I think um, this is a year where I think he has really high expectations. Um, and so, so I'm on the over, but I, I but I agree with you. Like I'm, I am would be very um, unsurprised if if things turn out more in the way you're looking at it. And and I'm and I think your concern is is not far from where I'm at as well. All right, let's uh, let's go to count them up. Washington State. Um, we've, we're looking at Washington State at eight and a half. All right, those numbers do match up. I've got both these uh, pulled up right now. So the Cougs are coming off a fantastic season. 
uh, with Gardner Minshew leading the way, ah, I, like how do how do you start that as you look at this year? Because you and I were so off and wrong with Washington yeah. State a year ago. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to to step on the underside, but like how how much consistency can you expect at a program like Washington State? Even as Mike Leach has Mike Leach has, has raised to me, Mike Leach has raised the floor in a big way. Mike Leach has absolutely raised the floor for Washington State um, football. But if last season was the ceiling and this thing is set at eight and a half, that's a we we have small wiggle room for a lot of these programs up near the top. But my lean here uh, is is to go on the under. If for for nothing else, then man, it's it's really really tough to win nine or ten games in back to back season in Pullman. Yeah, um, uh, man, last season shook me on Washington State. I that was that was my worst preseason call of the year, and I, I wasn't on a total island there. Um, but what they did, given the off season they had, the coaching turnover that they had, the the modest expectations we had for Gardner Minshew. I mean, that's crazy to me to, to, to see what he is, what he became, where he was drafted, all that stuff. And, and if you rewind and just not even like, I mean, it wasn't even, it was just a non-factor. Like we didn't even care that Gardner Minshew was going to Washington state. It was like, Oh man, maybe Gardner Minshew wins wins the job. Average East Carolina quarterback. So that really recalibrated my, I mean, my, my, I mean, he's for all the, um, wild Mike Leach talk and the eccentric nature of his character, he's just a consistent football coach. Um, and they, you know, they, so now they've got a quarterback situation where they've got this kid, Gage Gubrud, who's, uh, from, Eastern Washington and set the FCS single season passing record and is like a two time Walter Payton award finalist. And so, but he didn't play in the spring. He's a grad transfer. He may win the starting job. Trey Tinsley or Anthony Gordon are like these fifth year seniors who are just kind of operate the offense types. Um, but collectively, I mean, you, I would expect they've got someone in that group that is very competent at running the Mike Leach offense. And then you've got just about every returning reception from last year coming back. Um, so the offense will be fine. The defense with Tracy Clay as the defensive coordinator doesn't seem to have missed much of a beat with Alex Grinch gone. And I'm just sitting here like, I don't know. Like I don't. I don't really want to go out on. The, I don't really want to doubt Washington State again. And I've got losses to at Utah, at Oregon, and at Washington. And I've got them winning the rest. So I am hesitantly on the over. I can't believe how shook you are. <laughs> I, can't, I can't. I can't believe because nine and three. That's a really good season. It is. Mm. I'll tell you the one, as I look through, because I do this um, like last year, if you'll recall from last year, like the way I, I did this WZNLs? is literally pick every game. Yeah. 
and then so then those those games have to translate to the to the other schedules and and they have to match up and it, it sort of checks me and makes sure I'm not just picking all overs or whatever. Um, the team that just like and we'll talk about them in the next pod, but the team that like really is is throwing off my calibration and all this is UCLA because you see UCLA on the schedule and after last year you kind of assume it's a win, but. I mean, UCLA should be improved, and UCLA is the type of team I feel like can beat everyone they play, but who do they beat? How many do they beat? It's like Washington State's a perfect example of a team where, yeah, I've got them 9-3, and three, but could they lose to UCLA? Yeah. Could they lose to Houston? I mean, yeah. yeah. They could lose to a lot of these teams. They could lose at Cal. They could lose to Stamper. So um, it is, it's a hard call to make, but I don't know – I, I'm. I don't know why I sh- why I or we should doubt that this Washington State team can't be just as good as last year's team. Houston is the swing game. Derek King for Heisman. Washington State goes under. <laughs> yeah, they. I mean, like I'm. I'm just talking, but uh, that's a. Uh, I mean, this. I, I think eight and four is still probably a good season for the Cougars, even if this goes under. You know what's interesting about Washington State too is they're as as much as they are this like offensive uh, skill position sort of um, reputation of like you know they they throw it around the yard is they've got like a they're quietly building a little bit of this offensive line pipeline. At 2016, Joe Dahl was drafted in the fifth round. 2018, Cole Mattis was drafted in the fifth round. 2019, Andre Diller drafted in the first round. And Abe Lucas, who's a sophomore, who was like a freshman All-American by a lot of people, is like a, this really unique athlete at offensive tackle who is probably a future really high-round NFL draft pick. Um, and who knows? Like med- maybe uh, Frederick Maui Goa is a, a, an NFL guy as well. Like there's there's – so offensive line has been quietly this really nicely developed position at Washington State, which is kind of – Kind of cool to see. How many games y'all gonna win this fall? Stanford's over under set at six and a half. Um, interesting little tidbit here. I, my theory is that Stanford is like one of the most bet on teams out in Las Vegas because when the Golden Nugget released their top 100 games of the year game lines at maybe a month or two ago, they had like eight of Stanford's games on there. And I know. Eight of Stanford's games are not among the 100 best games that we're going to have in college football this year. But if you're going ahead and setting that line, it must be because the the professional sports bettors out in Las Vegas, they must love the consistency of Stanford football, right? Like it matches with all of their algorithms. Fascinating why everyone's in on Stanford. Also bewildering to me that this number is set at six and a half, considering that even down years for Stanford – uh, our eight went like eight and five in 2014, nine and four in 2018. Those are the worst years in the David Shaw era, which has included 82 wins in eight seasons. Six and a half would be a drop off, a massive drop off for the Cardinal. And like I, I mean, when I'm going through and I'm doing the the head to head, the toss up games, 
Like I, I quickly got to six or seven on Stanford's schedule before. Like I, I wonder if I would even take this if this was set at seven and a half. If I might take it over, especially as I've got Stanford uh, favored over even Oregon in some of my own personal head-to-head predictions. Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree with you. That line, I was surprised it was so low. Um, but I'm, I am on the under here. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. Look, I, look, I'm so it's. T- I mean, I'm. I am trying to. I mean, you know this. You talk. We have talked about this. I have. I have brought this up before. It. There's something has changed on the farm. There is a. There's. They were like 120th in the country or something in like rushing yards per game and like rushing efficiency. Like they're one of the worst teams in the country. So, and David Shaw is is a brilliant guy. He's also an optimistic guy. And he talks about how, oh, all that means because we were passing it so well. Like we were leaning on our strength. And that's, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, they did have some – I think KJ Costello is a good player, and David Shaw's already like literally saying like we are not expecting him back next year. He's going to the NFL, and that's I love that kind of confidence, and I and I don't doubt it, and I appreciate that kind of candid attitude, and that's cool that he's like encouraging that. But I also think if they're just going to sit back there and let KJ Costello throw it 30, 40 times, I think that they're they are foregoing where their advantage is, which is to be this hard-nosed football team that's different than everybody else. And Stanford has – has it's, it's not just because Stanford has been good at running so they should run it. It's about everyone's moving to the spread stuff. Stanford can recruit really tough, really strong guys that can bully people. And as I look at this Stanford roster – and I'm talking both sides of the ball, I don't quite see the bully ball opportunity there. I mean, the the defense is maybe I'm just not as familiar with these guys as I should be, but like Thomas Booker and Jovan Swan and Michael Williams and who – I mean, these guys just that, – that to me is not this – all these NFL draft picks on the defensive front that I'm used to seeing. Um, and – on top of and 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 keep in mind too that like Mike Bloomgren was not there last year, who was their former offensive coordinator and offensive line coach. Perhaps that had a pretty big impact. I don't know. Tavita Pritchard is in year two as offensive coordinator now. Maybe that'll be you know we'll see evolution there. But there's I think there's reason to be concerned at Stanford, and and there's a, a quiet offseason storyline that probably should get a lot more run, at least in this conversation, is that as I talk about this intellectual brutality and this that Stanford prides itself on and how they're tougher than everyone and more physical than everyone, their their strength coach, who has been the definition of that, the the driver of that, like the identity of this team, Shannon Turley was fired this offseason for some sort of, you know, unsaid transgression uh, that took place who knows what it what it was but he he's gone and I think that's a big deal so 
I mean, like, so you're getting ahead of it. You, like, I am living in the past, and you are living in the future with Stanford. And this is this is a pivot point for the program. That's exactly right. I am I am trying to get ahead of this. Yeah, and 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 project. Yes. In, in present tense, it's it's very hard to envision a 6-6 six and six Stanford team. But if we look at just sort of maybe the cracks in the foundation, uh, you know, it's you – know, I'm trying to be uh, – you know, who was the um, – who was the guy that, that predicted the, the real estate bubble was going to burst? Uh, I'm trying to be that guy. Hmm. You know, I'm trying to be the I'm trying to go uh, big short big, on this. The big, the big short. I'm a yeah. little big short on Stanford right now. <sighs> I'm feeling. I when we do our uh, win totals locks, Stanford might have just gotten scrubbed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a shocking number. Six and five or six and a half wins is a shocking number for Stanford. I'm with you. It is. Like, un- I was hoping it is unprecedented I was ex- in the David Shaw era. I was expecting eight or seven and a half when I pulled up the, the line and I was going to be feel like pretty good about like, Oh, like I'm going to pick this under at, and seven and five and I'll, you know, look smart or something. But six and five, six and a half wins like makes it, I got to like really commit to this, to this theory. And, uh, I would rather not commit to this theory at, at, at you know, at under, under seven wins, but, I'm going to I'm going to dive in on it and 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 play it out. I'd like to see you lock it up at the uh next month. We'll see. And and, w- and one other note on Stanford is this should be the year because this tw- their 2017 recruiting class was absurd. They had the number 1 tight end in the country, the number 1 offensive tackle in the country, the number 3 offensive tackle in the country, the number 1 quarterback in the country, but they only had like 14 commits in that class. Right. And so they still Walker Little is going to be a first round draft pick, we think. Kobe Parkinson is going to be uh, a first or second or third round tight end, we think. Um, Paulson Debo is one of the best corners in the country. Foster Sorrell, it, it looks like he's going to be a really good player. All these things. But when your class is that small, it's hard for that class to like come of age and really sort of take over a team and uh, and and like become this juggernaut. Like you know, they would if it was a, a top five class with 24 commits in it. Um, so I think that's that's kind of interesting as well. But um, yeah, I'm just and, and yeah, so I, I'm just I, I can't I can't get there. Count them up. Cal's win total set at six. Uh, Justin Wilcox has done an incredible job taking a defense that consistently ranked near the bottom of all of FBS in the Sunny Dykes era and turning it into one of the 15 best defensive units in the country. You know, they, they make a little bit of a jump last year with an offense that like, I don't know, it just kind of felt like Cal's off- offense went out there, right? Like they just, like they had some execution <laughs> problems. <laughs> it was just like, all right, guys, now you go out there. Defense <laughs> needs to uh, get some rest right now. And so, you know, even – even slight steps forward offensively feels like we could see the a continued more linear uh, per, linear development in the the win totals for Cal, but wins are tough to come by. Nine game conference schedule right at six. Um, where where are you leaning on this one? Uh, I was I'm I'm kind of right on six. I six I guess a six and six push kind of year. I think. 
So I, I, I don't like to predict a push. So I really wavered. Like I'm, I, I think I lean more towards the under than the over on the six. I'm certainly like staying away from a betting standpoint, but uh, I don't want to play the under. I don't want to say they're going to be a five and seven team because I feel like Justin Wilcox has done a good job and, they, and it just seems like there is – um, I'm push it, over. I've, I've, it, I've said yeah. push over and uh, push over is the idea that um, when you've got like, like there's, there just are these October and November games in my mind where Cal's going to win a game that they shouldn't. And that game that they shouldn't is probably going to get them to six and six or maybe to seven and five. There's absolutely a ceiling of how far I'm willing to move that program up in the general Pac-12 pecking order. But I feel more – how about this? I feel more confident in Cal with Justin Wilcox at this point in the season than I do with, like, most of the Pac-12 South right now. Uh, I mean, I feel good – I feel great about their defense – I think their defense is going to be awesome. I think they're, I mean, they've got one of the best secondaries in the country. They've got one of the best linebacking groups in the country. Like they're going to be in a lot of really close football games. And and I think their whole schedule is sort of these toss up types. I mean, UC Davis, they win, but at Washington, they'll be an underdog there, but I mean, no, no, no. Keep going to the back half. That's what I'm saying. This, this October, November schedule. But, but even, no, but look at the front half too. Like North Texas, like that's the exact type of group of five team against a team like Cal that North Texas could win. I mean, Ole Miss, I would expect Cal to win that game, but I don't know. Ole Miss might, I mean, like Rich Rodriguez and Mike McIntyre may have something up their sleeve there. I mean, Arizona State, Oregon, Oregon State, Utah, Washington State, USC, Stanford, at, at UCLA, like, which of those games is better than a push? Like, which of those games are you like, well, give me, give me, uh, I'll lay a touchdown this one. We got this one covered, you know? It, you I, cannot lay a touchdown with the Cal Bears in any contest. <laughs> no. No. And, and Chase Garbers is still your quarterback, and – God bless him. You know, he tries his, his darndest out bless, there. You just bless uh, your hearted Chase Garber. Yeah, and he's and maybe this is – maybe he makes a big step forward this year. Um, but I'd still – I mean, he is in the – he is in the like – I don't know. Like he's he's not Jake Browning, but he's he's got the Jake Browning sort of label to me from, from in the cow side of things. And so – I don't know, man. I just look at their personnel and I just look at on offense. I just can't – nothing excites me about this team on offense. Um, I know Bo Baldwin, their offensive coordinator, has taken over the quarterback coaching as well. That's sort of like the only shift they've made in that coaching staff. And so maybe that makes a difference. But I'm just re- – like I'm really stuck on six wins. Um, I just think it's like a, a coin flip season for them. And finally, wrapping up the Pac-12 North, a a tough number to pick just because no one's happy. If this thing goes over, this thing goes under, Oregon State at two and a half. Yeah, this is a tough one for me. I went under. I mean, I I lean under too because it's just sort of like, it's, it's almost the lazy thing to do. It's like, well, so let's just we, give, let's, I, just I, give I, let's just, let's just mark wins for everybody against Oregon State. Right. 
right? But that's the way it goes. Like there, it is rare that we catch like an ACC coastal situation where even the last place team has three or four conference wins. Like it's like there, there is most time by the end of the season in power five college football, a basement. And there is every bit of evidence to believe that Oregon state will still be in that basement. So here's, here's my, my, um, my devil's advocate, like counterpoint to Oregon state here. All right. So Jamar Jefferson rushed for like 1,400 yards as a true freshman. All right, so he's back. Uh, Jake Luton got like a waiver. He's back at quarterback. All right, so, you know, consistency, continuity there. All right. Isaiah Hodgins, a receiver, has been promising. Tyson Lindsey, Nebraska transfer, um, former top 50 recruit, plays this year. Noah Togiai, tight end, NFL draft potential. Um, Nathan Eldridge, a transfer from Arizona, who has had a ton of experience playing in the Pac-12 on the offensive line. Defensively, Addison Gums, who was going to make plays at Oklahoma, was always was like making waves, transfers. Um, Hamilcar Shed, who's one of like these freaky athletes at linebacker. Uh, Avery Roberts, transfer from Stan- from uh, Nebraska, was a four-star recruit coming out of high school. David Morris, four-star recruit coming out of high school. Now he's in his sophomore year at safety. They, Jonathan Smith, who was at Washington when Washington was really good on offense, like it's, I, I. I think Oregon State will be improved this year. I think the 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 reason I'm still inclined to take the the under two and a half is I think we have a little bit of room to work with here in the sense of not only were they bad last year but they got blown out mm-hmm. like they the games weren't close so we could see at least a, an Oregon State team this year that still goes two and ten but goes two and ten and their games are really close. And they look like a much better team. And then we set up for year three. And we, that's when we can start saying, all right, now they win some of these games. So uh, I actually do think there's a, a, a scenario here where Oregon State like really does improve and looks like a lot better team because of all the transfers they've gotten, all the way they turned over that roster. And if you just have some confidence in Jonathan Smith. But I just – I still think I'm probably likely to take the under here just to uh, – to, to help my bets out elsewhere. Sorry, Oregon State. <laughs> like I, we we got to get these wins from somewhere. <laughs> Goodness gracious! Uh, all right, we will be back on Thursday with the Pac-12 South, including the always enticing USC Trojans. You can follow him on Twitter at Barton Simmons. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Barton, it feels so so good to be back doing these totals. That was satisfying. Thanks. <laughs>